0: Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR 161 AZ 95, Delegated Powers from the Easy Chair. Excellent colloquies on various subjects.
1: This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 205, October 18, 1989. This evening, Otto, uh, Scott, and myself will discuss the subject of delegated
0: powers.
1: Now, this may sound a somewhat abstract subject, not related to our everyday life, but I think it is intensely important, very, very essentially related to the problems of our time. Let me start by calling attention to something in one of George Orwell's earlier writings, I believe. Dorothy and I were discussing some things the other day and she reminded me of what Orwell had written. Before the empire, the British Empire, fell, Orwell had predicted that it would fall, that its day was ended. And he gave a very... Telling and simple reason for what had happened and what was going to happen. He said modern communications had sentenced the empire to death because in the old days a colonial officer was far away in Africa or Asia or somewhere else in the Pacific. And as a result, it was his authority that prevailed. He had to be a man capable of making decisions and with some initiative. But once modern communication set in, it became possible for London to pick up a phone or use the wireless to send him a cable or call him and insist on not only a report but make all the decisions. It meant that London, without a knowledge of what was going on in the field, was making the decisions, and the men there out in Burma or wherever else they were, were flunkies. Orwell, observing this, felt that an empire could not stand when everything was concentrated in London. Now, there was an inability to delegate the powers to those on the field who knew the conditions best. And as a result, less and less were they able to get capable men. The old colonial officer who was a man capable of making decisions gave way to a bureaucrat ruled by a bureaucrat. Well, with that general introduction, I'll ask Otto to make a general statement about the question of delegated powers.
0: Well, it's a very extensive question, or subject. What Orwell observed in the empires, I've observed in corporations, the almost all crucial decisions flow up to the top. And the time of the men at the top in, uh, well, let's say, a poorly managed organization, corporation, or whatever, becomes overloaded with all decisions because they will not permit men in lesser positions to make a decision. Now, this, of course, was uh, according to Cincinnati's who wrote the book about our defeat in Vietnam. One of the reasons why we lost in Vietnam is that over the field troops that were even engaged in battle, there was a helicopter with senior commanders, and over that, a second helicopter with even more senior commanders who were relaying orders from the air down to the men on the ground. They were afraid to let anybody make an individual move. And, of course, this is becoming commonplace in the United States at, as a whole. Uh, uh, we've been listening recently to the reports of the San Francisco earthquake, and it's interesting how many lectures are interspersed with the reportage. Mm-hmm. They're afraid that people will be left bereft without a thought unless the commentator gives them a lecture. Yes.
1: Well, one of the interesting things, too, is that uh, in churches, whether they were Presbyterian or Episcopal or Catholic, it used to be commonplace that the man in charge of the local parish rarely had contact with the powers above him. He was a man who made the decisions and lived with them. In those days, the amount of records he was required to keep were minimal. They were essential records. Births, marriages, and excommunications, that sort of thing. But in the era of modern communications and the emphasis on records, Men who are pastors are judged in those denominations where there is oversight by a presbytery, a bishop, a district superintendent, or the like. Uh, the emphasis is so heavily on records that their future very often depends on that. Their records are regularly examined. Are the minutes, say, of the session? in order were they properly recorded these are the things that are considered important so that the essential thing no longer matters for example in one church a denomination an elaborate program this goes back 30 years of an every member canvas was developed Every man whose name was on the books and and those who were not members but were visiting had to be canvassed regularly, annually, to make a pledge, and then, if he didn't follow through, you were to uh, go after him gently. Now, of course, most of those people did not realize that when you sign a pledge card, it's a contract. You can be taken to court for it. I don't know that churches have, but nonetheless, that's its status. In this one particular case, a pastor did not like the whole concept of the every member canvas and said, I believe that people should give as they are given to. Well, that particular church was way up near the very top, even though it was a, a parish of people of modest means way up in the top in the entire area in terms of giving but the pastor was rebuked because even though the giving was so good he had not followed the procedure
0: the proper process yes well that's very interesting the phrase delegated powers, as you know, is a very old one in English law. One of the reasons for the English Civil War was James was Charles I uh, forced loans from the people. Mm-hmm. He called them a loan, but of course it was a shakedown. And he would send his agents out in the name of the king to demand a certain amount of money from various landowners, peers, and so forth. Uh, Each of these men had the power of the king. At the end of the Civil War, when Cromwell and the Roundheads took over, one of the things that was changed and that was never came back was what John Locke called the principle of delegated powers. And that is, no realm can endure more than one king at a time. Yes. A king who can make 10,000 other kings is oppressive. So there are two things about delegated power. The main point was that the king could not delegate his power because only the king could do certain things. Nobody in his name can do the same things because the power is limited to the office. That was the underlying principle of our Constitution. The powers of Congress were limited. The powers of the presidency were limited. The powers of the court were limited. And none of the three were allowed to encroach upon the powers of the other two. Now that principle has been forgotten.
1: There's another aspect there... Because uh, we are also told in the Constitution all powers not specifically given to the President, to Congress, and to the courts are reserved to the people.
0: And there is no room in the Constitution for them to take those powers. That's
1: right. But they have.
0: Oh, yes, they have, because they've forgotten their limitations. Mm -hmm. Now, Congress has violated in a very major way the uh, principle of delegated powers because Congress was entrusted by the Constitution with the power to enact legislation and with the power of the purse, period. What Congress has done, mainly in this century but not entirely, has been to create agencies to administer the areas that it has enacted laws over. And like the ICC and the SEC and uh, the SEC and and the, so forth. The agencies have received this power from Congress, which has no real constitutional power to delegate it, because it's delegating its own power. And not only has it delegated the power to these agencies to regulate certain areas of, of activity, But the agencies have expanded their power to set up a court system of their own, to set up a police system of their own, so that the agencies not only write laws and forms of regulation, but they administer the forms and they adjudicate Mm -hmm. the obedience to the forms and they punish those who don't follow the forms. Now, of course... If you don't like what the agency does, you can always appeal to the federal court. But first you have to go through the baffle of the agency. Mm -hmm. And there is no guarantee that the federal court will hear your appeal because the Supreme Court has now persuaded Congress to enact a law saying that the Supreme Court can pick and choose, can reject, if it wants to, any and all appeals. Mm -hmm. So the court of the highest appeal is no longer the Court of Last Appeal. That could be the Court of Appeals or someone else. Now, the proliferation of these agencies has created a massive bureaucracy which monitors every person in the United States from morning till night, every day of his life. And yet the Constitution has no space at all for any such activities. So there you see the violation of delegated powers.
1: Well, another area. Some years ago, I did a little reading off and on about our foreign policy in the early years of the Republic. And it did interest me how very often we sent uh, strong men abroad. Sometimes they were literary figures, men who could well represent the United States. And since it took weeks for a boat to get any word to them, these men had to make key decisions, whether they were in London and Moscow and Paris or Madrid, wherever they were. And they made them. Now, sometimes the decisions were not very good. Certainly, uh, during the French Revolution, George Washington was not happy with the decisions Monroe was making who later became president, in Paris. Uh, Monroe was the liberal of his day and had some fuzzy ideas. But the point is, the man
0: in the field made them. That's no longer true. No longer true for the State Department because an ambassador now is just simply a fellow who goes and attends parties. Yes. State Department runs foreign affairs from the State Department or from the Oval Office. Exactly the kind of thing that Orwell was talking about. We don't have an ambassadorial service in the true sense. Uh, I and this is not new either. I recall that uh, years ago, at least two two decades ago, and, and in some cases longer. I became aware of the fact that uh, an American in trouble abroad could call for help from anybody except the State Department. Mm -hmm. The State Department says the laws of the uh, local state take precedence over everything. So if you're caught stealing in Iran, you'll lose a hand. Well,
1: we've seen, for example, uh, on the rare occasions when we've had a strong and intelligent man as uh, an ambassador, Professor Lewis Tam, who uh, provided the best and most intelligent reports that one could uh, make. But uh, I guess he was too intelligent for the State Department. They could not tolerate his stand. He was supposed to be a mindless rubber stamp.
0: He, Lou Toms was a very good ambassador. His life was threatened in Colombia many times and attempts were made to assassinate him. The papers here didn't even report it. No.
1: He was not our kind of man as far as the State Department was concerned. Well, uh, William Carroll Bark wrote, uh, oh, 30 years or so ago, a very telling Analysis on the origins of the medieval world. And it was, to a large degree, an account of the fall of Rome. Why Rome fell, and why the medieval world began so totally decentralized. Why it was that people did not want urban life, because cities died with the fall of Rome. And it was not because people were suddenly uh, barbarians or they wanted a rural life. It was because life in the city had become unendurable through centralization. And he said the great evil in Rome was the great problem that everyone believed. The answer to all things was simplification, centralization, the endless concentration of power at the top. So it meant that nothing uh, got ahead and you had endless people uh, who were running around like King Charles's men uh, enforcing this centralized and brutal power over a people who had lost all their freedom.
0: Well there seems to be a tendency in human beings to enjoy a benevolent power and to get closer and closer to the source of power. Practically every corporation that I've ever studied was a monarchy. And a monarchy is the oldest form of government. It is still in existence. Uh, Gorbachev is the king of Russia at this point. He doesn't call himself a king, but he is. And that we have what our founding fathers called an elective monarchy in the president. In, in recent years, we've had some rather weak individuals occupying that very powerful office, but nevertheless, a strong man would certainly show you that it contains a great deal of power. And I really don't know why there are so many who go into this form of involuntary servitude but it's a very common failing Mm -hmm. I've seen very few men and less and less as I get older who stand up the way we used to stand up of course in part this is due to the fact that the system today follows us so much more closely than it used to
1: here's another aspect of it When you and I were somewhat younger, Otto, there was quite a network of baseball teams from coast to coast. All kinds of minor leagues, all kinds of grades of minor leagues. People don't appreciate how numerous they were and how the sporting pages would carry information about all these little leagues. And... uh, Now, no one is interested in that kind of baseball. They're only interested in watching the top teams. So that if uh, Stockton or Sacramento have teams in a league, which they do, they have trouble finding an audience because too often people want to watch only the best. Now, to carry this over into other fields... Years ago, when I was a student, I was working part-time and uh, getting through college with a variety of jobs. And in this one office where I worked, over the most trifling uh, matters, some clerk would say, well, what does the top man say about it? or I'm going to go and check with him.
0: In other words, exactly. Uh, we... Uh, exactly. We want
1: a monarchy, and we want the ultimate power to say so, which means you obliterate everything in between.
0: Well, also you protect it. Yeah. Don't forget that.
1: Yes, I have forgotten it.
0: There's a... Uh, then if something goes wrong, the top man can't mm-hmm. blame you. Mm-hmm. There is a Russian story, I can't recall the author now, I'm not too good on Russian names anyway, uh, about this fellow who was a clerk, and his name came up in the usual rotation manner for a possible increase in salary. And his superiors then quietly spent the day watching him. And he came in and he took his coat off and his jacket off and he hung it up and he wrote, put his sleeves back and he put a protector over his forearms and he opened up the ledger and he put his pen into the inkwell and he perfectly copied everything there was. And he turned, when he got through, he would turn the page and do it again and he did that without slacking all day. At the end of the day, he took the protectors off his sleeves and he put his cuffs down and his links together and put his jacket on and his hat and said, good night, gentlemen, and left promptly at the right moment. So one said to the other, I think perhaps we could promote him a little bit, give him a little more money. He seemed to have done pretty well. The other one said, no, he's reckless. The first one said, why? He said he never used the blotter (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and this mentality permeates our country today. Mm. Encounter Magazine had a, an article about 15 years ago on this question: on the question that instant communication, Orwell's mm-hmm. observation, has now reached the point where individual liberty is no longer truly possible. Mm -hmm. With the computer, with a total dossier, with a complete record of everything you do, of where every money, every penny you spend goes, you cannot have a secret life, you cannot have a double life, you cannot have a private life.
1: Mm -hmm. An interesting observation on that, I uh, saw something recently, and I don't remember the statistics on how the number of unlisted telephones are increasing, because people do not want to be contacted. It destroys their ability to work, mm-hmm. and they feel that we will have a telephone for emergency services. Mm-hmm. But apart from that, we want the freedom to go about our daily tasks.
0: And that, you know, when the phone rings it's somebody that you know, mm-hmm. I had an unlisted phone in New York. Uh, the regular phone you get surveys at 6 o'clock in the evening or 6.30 some uncomfortable moment there was one uh, survey that called and Anne answered and uh, the question was what is your goal in life and she said I'm an Anglican and the party said well that's not the answer and Anne said that's not the question and Anne said that's the answer But I read now that the government has an outline and a profile which marketing people acquire. They are now grouping the American people together in terms of their zip codes, in terms of the neighborhoods in which they live. And they have discovered, which of course we always knew, that similar people are apt to live in similar localities. Mm. And I don't know whether the people make the locality or vice versa. It doesn't seem to matter one way or the other. And on that basis, they're directing advertising and voting appeals and congressmen's mails and so forth. Now, all of this sounds so fearsomely efficient that you would really think that they're going to be able to control us. But now, remember being asked by the oil company I was connected with what the chairman should say to the church committee. The church committee, Senator Church was heading, and they were going to subpoena him and ask him about international payoffs. Uh, I recall that in Washington then they refused to call Mr. Church a church. They called him a Sunday school because they said he wasn't big enough to be a church. (laughs) uh, Senator Sunday School. At any rate, Senator Sunday School was thinking of running for president, and he was going to bring in the chairman, and the council said, well, what do you think he ought to say? And I knew they had exhausted all the conventional uh, attempts. So I brought up the delegated powers issue, and I said he should say that there's only one king and that since the company had already answered questions from the SEC and the IRS and various and sundry other groups, that to be called in by this final group was a little bit too much, that each of the groups had said they were the king. Senator Sunday School now was calling himself the king. He was trying to prove he was worthy of being a king by beating up American citizens in front of the world, which, of course, senatorial committees enjoy doing. And uh, went down that line. Well, the council said, we've tried everything else, let's try that. And I was amazed. I never thought they'd take that advice. I went home and then I waited a few weeks and nothing happened, so I called up and said, what happened? And they said, oh, oh, well. We showed that testimony, that statement, to the senator's staff, and they tore up the subpoena. Very good. And now... In effect, it's a world of people, not of rules. Mm -hmm. The rules are only applied, and we all know this, to certain people and not to all the people. Yes. And this is one of the reasons for the vast and growing disillusion of the nation with its government. Mm -hmm. It is no longer fair. People are afraid of it it is no longer functioning properly.
1: Yes. Before we continue, Otto, I'd like to ask a question. Did you ever read Dmitry Maryschkovsky's Republic of the Southern Cross?
0: No, I never did.
1: Did you read anything of Maryschkovsky's? No, I don't think so. He was a very interesting writer, in some respects brilliant, in other respects decadent. His most famous work, which... uh, in the 20s and 30s was out in a modern library trilogy was Christ and Antichrist Mm. a great deal in it uh, was very very uh, interesting but uh, he also had a great many peculiar ideas well he wrote one work uh, a short work, a novelette really entitled, The Republic of the Southern Cross.
0: Hmm.
1: And it was about a totally scientific community wherein all the modern ideas, political, scientific, and economic were applied. It was a community in Antarctica, under the ice, manufacturing, everything automated, every person with a job to do totally controlled the world of automation was carried over into the human sphere and it was the marvel of the world and the nations were uh, admiring it and looking forward to converting their nations into the same pattern then suddenly there was a blackout as people in the Republic of the Southern Cross began suddenly to fall apart to rebel to do mindless things such as wrecking everything in sight and that was the end of the Republic of the Southern Cross it was a very telling story I haven't done it justice uh, it's sad that it's forgotten when it's so much needed in our time
0: interesting it sounds very interesting. It, you know, I, I think I mentioned to you that I recently finished a book of uh, Analysis of the Odyssey and it was a rather interesting analysis. The writer uh, reminded us that the word Odysseus means man of suffering, and his task, of course, was to come through these various tests. At the very end of his travels, he was washed ashore, as you remember, on an island that was very remote. It was occupied by the Phaeacians, who had an extremely advanced civilization because they were under the special protection of Poseidon. They had magic boats that could travel in the space of a thought anywhere in the world and that could travel over the water so that they were never affected by the storms or the waves. And they had all the comforts that were possible to conceive in Homer's time. The princess who found Odysseus took him to her palace and where he was bathed and dressed And then she went into her chambers, her rooms, where her nursemaid came and her servants and took care of her. It was a great literary society in which they, the the poets would play and sing and tell them stories about events that happened, heroes of other places, other times. And in effect, they saw life from a distance. They saw life from inside their shelter, Mm -hmm. where they were remote from all the suffering and the tragedies and the ups and downs of other people. And Odysseus' last gift from them was to be placed in the magic boat with all kinds of presents, presents greater than the loot that he originally had from the fall of Troy. And he was transferred to the quickness of thought back to Ithaca and then Poseidon grew bored with the Phaeacians and snuffed them out and because they had never done anything because they had never truly lived there was no record and no memory of them Mm -hmm. and it was impossible to read this without suddenly thinking of the United States sitting here in this great garden watching life on television, living in various soap operas and dreams, inundated with the literature of the ages and all the classics, and watching all the tribulations of other parts of the world while we are removed. And we have something like the San Francisco earthquake and its comparable earthquake in Armenia, I understand, snuffed out 20,000 people, they snuffed out two or three hundred in San Francisco and we act as though this is a great, terrible thing. All, nicar- all managra, I reminded you a little while ago, was snuffed out in five minutes. Tens of thousands! Because a real earthquake cannot be withstood by anything. And I think then, you know, to delegate power in a country like ours at a time of this sort is not really so difficult. When there's a crunch, authority then has got to either prove its value or relinquish its position. Well,
1: a remark so common among many Christians when they have adversity why did God let this happen to me? In other words, they want that dream life. Yes. They want a troubled free existence. Security. Security.
0: Security.
1: In a fallen world, they want security.
0: This is what Hitler offered. Yes. That's what they traded him for. Mm-hmm. So he'd take care of them. This is what Lenin offered. Yes. And without the tests, without the test of life, Mm -hmm. what is life? What good is life if it has no challenge and no risk?
1: Everybody wants God to make them his specially spoiled child.
0: Well, you know, God's favorites are the ones that he exacts the most from, the Mm. martyrs. Yes. I mean, if he takes the most from the best and the least from the worst, Mm -hmm. you shouldn't expect to get away with everything. Yes, that's
1: what we are told, that if we do not have the Lord's chastening, then we are not sons but bastards. That's not a popular passage in Scripture.
0: There's a (laughs) lot of passages in Scripture that are not popular. I mean, I once (laughs) told a fellow, a drunk about the fool returning to to his sin like a dog to to his his vomit yes (laughs) and he shuddered shuddered visibly (laughs) he was shocked there are people who are easily shocked you know yes not by the sort of things that you would expect them to be shocked by
1: they're shocked if you say anything that strikes home where they're concerned that's Unpardonable. It's like the statement of a woman to me once that I was obviously not a Christian because a Christian never hurts anybody's feelings.
0: <laughs> then a Christian could never be able to open his mouth, could he? Yes. Well, the whole question of power and authority in this country is very interesting when we were young as you were saying before there was a great deal of talk about how independent we were and there was a considerable amount of independence you could still punch somebody in the nose without having a federal case made out of it and uh, you could quit and get another job without a dossier or a resume uh, we didn't have therapists to come in to tell us how to handle our grief we had friends we had clergymen we had a church. Uh, the idea that schoolchildren would be asked what their parents did at home was something that never entered anyone's mind. And there's been a great deal of loss of freedom by simply not standing up.
1: We're talking about delegated powers, and it is worthwhile just to consider what power means. Yes, because uh one of the things I've never forgotten was uh, a good many years ago visiting a community in northern Minnesota on the Canadian border where they had a heavy gumbo soil. When uh, I was there, it was early winter and uh, there was no uh, pavement on the streets. I put on my overshoes and walked from the hotel to a store across the street and it was as though I had snowshoes because the mud just clung uh, to my feet and there was uh, scrapers there that you'd try to knock off that uh, gumbo in order to go into any place. Well, one of the men there was telling me, he said, you know, until recently, nobody could work this land. You could not touch it with uh, horse-drawn equipment. It, It was too heavy a soil. But now it's a very rich and productive area because we have the power to work tractors. Now, his view of power was in terms of production, activity. Right. But the modern concept of power is the power to rule over others, to put them down. Yes. To do your will with other people. So the whole concept of power has been warped.
0: Well, individual power came in with Christianity the power of the individual was equal to the power of the state because under God you were free. The only person you had to obey was God. You didn't have to obey other men. Now this comes up in all kinds of forms. I once had a commission to do an article about psychological testing in the 50s. So I applied at three different companies for a job as a salesman. And I said I was a business writer and I was tired of uh, being a business writer, that I was used to interviewing businessmen and getting along with them and I thought that I could uh, sell pretty well if I was selling intangible services and whatnot. One of the companies was the U.S. News and World Report, which had something called the Bureau of National Affairs, I believe. Mm -hmm. I'm not positive. And they were selling a whole series of law books and books on accounting to lawyers and accountants, and they would add a supplement to them uh, whenever Congress changed the rules and so forth. A very good service, and they needed a man in the Wall Street district. They gave me, I remember, an entire week of tests, psychological tests, including a test on your sense of humor. (laughs) And I won't repeat the jokes, but I remember a few of them. Some of them were funny and some of them were not. And I wrote on some of them, ha-ha, good joke, and others I wrote, bad joke, poor humor, things like that. And I answered all the questions honestly, and at the very end of the interview, I recall, was a psychologist. He was a little fellow, his toes barely touched the floor from his chair. <laughs> and he was, he was a, a mild kind of man, and he said, you kept saying, you've done so well. And I said, well, I don't know how I could have done so well. I didn't answer all those questions. Oh well, he said, no. some of those questions were only a schnookle would answer, and <laughs> we're not in the business of hiring schnookles. <laughs> so, in other words, some of these questions, did you ever steal, did you ever tell a lie, this and that, uh, were questions that no reasonable man would answer uh, and say, no, I never did. Did you ever take a pencil, you know? Did you ever tell a social lie? So forth. So there were a lot of tricks in the tests. And uh, my conclusion was that the tests were an invasion of privacy, but that you didn't have to allow your privacy to be invaded after all, you couldn't expect the government to keep people from trying to invade your privacy. It was up to you to defend your liberties and to refuse to go along with such an invasion. And the editors were very upset. They said, now that's not, that's not right at all. They said, you didn't need the job. I said, how do you know I didn't need the job? <laughs> I mean, some of these are pretty good jobs, and I might have taken them. I wouldn't have taken them in any different way if uh, I had decided that I wanted the job and they said, well, we, we doubt that, Otto and, and uh, we just don't think that that's a valid conclusion what they wanted me to say was quite simply that people were being victimized by the tests, and that brings up the whole question of victimization, of rights whether your rights are, are given to you your rights are not given to you your rights are something that you must exercise If you don't exercise, you have given them up. Mm -hmm. Yes.
1: Well, going back again to Orwell's point, in the modern world, communications, instead of bringing people together, have been used to tyrannize over them. And as a result, they have hindered communications. True. The uh, colonial officers that uh, were governed from London and could not exercise an independent thought or uh, act as free agents were not improved thereby. They were diminished as persons. Mm-hmm. And this kind of uh, use of communications compels people to withhold communication. They're afraid to speak out.
0: They're afraid to express themselves. Well, I don't interview with a tape recorder because nobody really wants to answer searching questions for all eternity. Uh, I I don't use a tape recorder. I take notes like an old-fashioned reporter, which I am. And often after I put the notes away, the interview begins because then the man completely relaxes. And I'm not so much interested in precisely what he said as I am interested in what he meant to tell me. It's the significance of his remark that I'm interested in. I don't believe in tape recording telephone conversations. I don't believe the tape recorder has been a good thing in our society at all. You know about the case, we've discussed it recently at one of our breakfasts, I think, Uh, the Joe McGinnis case where he was sued by Dr. McDonald, the man who was convicted of murdering his wife and children. McGinnis, the writer, had gotten close to him, had lived in MacDonald's apartment and had spent many hours interviewing him on the premise that he was going to present MacDonald's side of the case to the world. In the end, he wrote a book proving to the best of his ability that MacDonald was guilty. And MacDonald charged him with a violation of trust. And McGinnis settled out of court for a very large sum of money because the book was a bestseller and made quite a bit of money. Then there was another, uh, Janet, uh, I've forgotten her name, uh, another woman, a woman who writes for The New Yorker, yes. who got next to, uh, what was his name? Uh, the psychiatrist.
1: Yes, not
0: Massey. Masow? Masson. Masow. Jeffrey Mason. Jeffrey Mason, who wormed her way into Masson's confidence, listened to him and then wrote a book ridiculing him, portraying him as a gigolo, and and quoting him as saying all sorts of things which he didn't say. Well, apparently she was forced in court to bring her tape records in. They played the tapes and proved that he had never said what she quoted him as saying. She admitted she had made up the quotes, and yet the court ruled that the quotes were a fair reflection of the implications of what he said and therefore Masson lost the case.
1: Which means it is now dangerous to be near a reporter because he has the right to invent what he wants well, to make it, his case.
0: In that court and in that before that judge, mm-hmm. it's hard for me to believe that such a ruling could be upheld all the way. Because if so, it means that anyone could say anything about anybody. Now, we have already, in effect, destroyed the laws of slander for public Mm -hmm. figures. If that sort of ruling were to become widespread, we would destroy the laws of slander for all people. Yes. And it comes back to the communications that you're talking about and the reason why people don't speak. The... I I noticed a great difference in the country. I recall uh, when we used to travel by train, that you would sit there in the train and a fellow would come and sit next to you and within a half an hour he'd tell you what he did for a living, how he got along with his wife, how much money he made, what he thought of the government, and everything else. All kinds of things would come boiling out which you didn't particularly care to know. But at any rate, he was totally free and uninhibited. Today, I fly across the country, and I've tried this several times. If I don't speak, the other person won't. All the way across the United States. And when they do speak, they're very careful. Mm -hmm. What are they afraid of? Well, they're afraid of this society of ours, which seems to have eyes everywhere, and where nothing is sacred.
1: communion is gone because community is gone nobody sings as people did
0: how could you sing a rock song
1: no you can't but uh, you didn't get a group anywhere going places in a car or a bus everybody
0: started singing as soon as it was dark yes yes when it wasn't dark yes I remember many songs yes delegated powers Well, we're becoming a very powerful nation, we're told, that we've become a superpower. It's hard to believe. We can't fight Panama. (laughs) We can't fight Nicaragua. But we're supposed to be a superpower. It's a great superpower, I must say. It's done with mirrors.
1: We ripped the pants off of Grenada. Grenada. Grenada.
0: Grenada. Well, that was with difficulty, I understand. And they put out more medals. (laughs) They put out lots of medals for that. I really should charge the government for my lack of medals, you know. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, they gave the medals to people who were never there. They were in the Pentagon.
0: But Congress now seems not to have as much power as it thought it had, even with all these agencies. Mm -hmm. It's a very strange set of affairs.
1: The false exercise of power leads to the destruction of power. That's what we're seeing in the Soviet Union. With all these years of the abuse of power, power has eroded. Power is collapsing.
0: Well, contracts used to be the substance of the law. Almost all law was contract law. Mm-hmm. And the question before the law was whether the contract was violated by one party or another mm-hmm. and whether the violation caused an injury. Contract law is being replaced by torts yes. in which a violation is being charged by an individual against a group or against another individual. In effect, torts invent new crimes and new liabilities. So we have left the old shelter of the law and moved into a sort of a cannibalistic Hobbesian society where all fights all. Yes. Well,
1: Orwell saw this sort of thing as a basic in 1984. When he wrote 1984, he presented a world in which No one had any initiative or power on their own where an anonymous big brother who may or may not have existed, who might have been a collection of people, was presented as the Lord and Master of all. All things were under him, and he did not dare think independently.
0: Well, the Big Brother never did appear in the novel, if you recall. That's right. He was mentioned, but he never appeared. Now, we have the Big Brother system without Big Brother. We don't have an individual. We don't have a Hitler. We don't have a Stalin or a Lenin or a Castro or whatever. So, therefore, we have the illusion that we have more freedom. But with all these committees, all these agencies, all these commissions, uh... It's hard for me to think of an unregulated area. And in fact, the liberals every so often say, aha, that's an unregulated area. Yes. As though that's a terrible thing. That We must see that that area is governed and monitored. We must not allow this to be unregulated. Yes. Well, of course, this uh, contains the seeds of its own downfall.
1: Yes. Well, we have just a couple of minutes as our last
0: statement you'd like to make now, Otto? Yes, I think the Christian revival, the Christian reconstruction, is a sign that the encroachment of power upon the individual is arousing the Christian instincts of the people.
1: Yes, and the resistance is growing. I was talking with a pastor today, for in terms of what Shelby Sharp wrote about is being taken to court and they're going to fight and it is uh, exciting to see the resistance it means problems it means a battle but it means there are people out there who are ready to fight for their Christian freedom marvelous yes well thank you all for listening and God bless you
0: Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library Digitized by Christrules. com